You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. President, your attorneys have taken uh, what is seen as the narrow view on impeachment, saying that impeachment should be limited to very serious crimes committed in one's official capacity. My question is, uh, would you consider the crimes returned in the indictments last week, those of perjury, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy, to be impeachable of crimes if they did apply to you? Well, I've uh, also uh, quit beating my wife. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, the crime of perjury is a serious crime. And of course, the crime of obstruction of justice is a serious crime and would be an impeachable offense. And uh, I do not expect that the House Committee will find that the President is guilty of uh, any of these crimes to which you have referred. Uh, when you refer to a narrow view of what is an impeachable crime, I would say that what might leave in the minds of some of our viewers and listeners uh, a connotation of uh, which uh, would be inaccurate. It's the constitutional view. Uh, the constitutional is very precise. Even Senator Irvin agrees uh, that that view is the right one. And if Senator Irvin agrees, it must be the right one. faces, both Democrats and Republicans. They looked from one side to the other side, and I saw them getting red and agitated, unbelieving. And I thought, oh, wonderful. It's coming across. But then, all of a sudden, my joy diminished and I said, you'll see, they'll, they'll come back a day or two later with rationalizations, with ways of explaining things. It's very difficult to infer that material on a given page is detrimental to the president when all of the participants to that conversation have testified in other forums under oath and have not revealed anything detrimental to the president. Good. Thank you very much. He didn't believe that he was involved in a criminal act. And uh, to tell you the truth, I didn't either. You don't have to be a constitutional lawyer to know that the Constitution is very precise in defining what is an impeachable defense, uh, uh, a, an impeachable uh, offense. A criminal offense on the part of the president uh, is the requirement for impeachment. I do not expect to be impeached. 
Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and this episode we are going to concentrate on the actual uh, criminal act or accusation thereof that uh, was used to try to impeach the president. And understand that this was a case that grew over time uh, that ended out of nowhere because of the June 23rd tape. And we're going to have some shows on the smoking gun tape, which is the order of President Nixon to Bob Halderman to uh, ask the uh, CIA to stop the FBI investigation um, because of uh, uh, not wanting to expose things in in Mexico uh, operations. There was an agreement between the two organizations not to expose each other's operations or uh, their, their people that were working. But as the president says, there... You have to have a criminal act by the president. And really, Watergate will circulate around two acts. Did, you know, the smoking gun, which is the, the, the actual tape where he makes that order. And then the March 21st tape where he agrees, President Nixon's supposed to agree to pay hush money uh, to Howard Hunt, who was one of the burglars. Uh, and... I'm going to allow Jeff Shepard to explain this because if you take the smoking gun out, which we're, so we're going to deal with it later, then it all rests on whether you can prove that Richard Nixon ordered the payment. And what I would say is because of the, the swiftness of uh, the way Richard Nixon went out of office due to the smoking gun tape, that all this stuff that you see going on before that is because the prosecutors know they don't have a case in this uh, payment of hush money or legal fees or what have you. And they know it, and they work around the system. And this should disturb everybody in America that a prosecutor would figure out a way to take grand jury evidence, which is taken without the defendant having any way to defend himself, seal it, give it to a judge, have the judge give it to the House committee, uh, on on the impeachment, and then have them go through and, and make their decisions to impeach somebody without ever allowing the president to specifically see what the accusation is against him. And at the end of the day, you have to have a crime. Now, you might not like some of the language on the tapes. You might not like some of the things that are inferred on the tapes. Uh, but you got to have a crime, and these are the only two tied to President Nixon. And we're going to go through one of them, this one, right now. Dean, then, this is Wednesday morning, okay? Dean then goes into a meeting with the president at 1030. The date being? March 21st, 1973. And this is called the cancer on the presidency meeting. He goes in and says, you know, Mr. President, that things haven't been going well. Uh, there's an awful lot of pressure. Uh, uh, you're going to have to make some decisions uh, really serious decisions, and you don't know what's been going on, but we are being blackmailed by Howard Hunt. And uh, other people have committed perjury and made false representations during the course of this investigation, and it's about to blow. And then he spends an hour and a half with President Nixon, we have the tape, talking about what on earth they should do. Should they pay Hunt? Should they buy time to get their act together? Should they say, no, this is never going to work uh, uh, because over time, 
it, it might cost a million dollars. And it takes an hour and a half, but there's no decision made at that meeting. Haldeman joins for the last half hour. And the only decision, because we have the tape, is let's get Mitchell down from New York and decide what to do. So right after that meeting, Haldeman calls Mitchell. Mitchell can't come down until the next day. At 5 o'clock that evening, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Dean, and Nixon gather to prepare for the meeting on Thursday when Mitchell will come. And while it's not perfectly clear in that meeting, they all believe that Mitchell's guilty as hell. And if the president calls for a new investigation, which is becoming the answer, it's like asking John Mitchell to walk the plank. Then, and this is what's amazing, is they discover substantially later that at 10 o'clock that night, Wednesday night, March 21st, $75,000 is paid to Howard Hunt's lawyer. Okay, so there's a payoff. Now, look at it from a special prosecutor's point of view just for a second. Nixon learns at a meeting that ends at noon, at 10 o'clock that night, Fred LaRue arranges for the payment to Howard Hunt. Nixon must have been involved. Okay, now, what has to have happened in that 10-hour window is after the tape stopped, Nixon has to have told Haldeman, tell Mitchell to pay that guy. Haldeman calls Mitchell. That's record- It's not recorded, but we know there's a phone call. They say it was to invite Mitchell to come down to the meeting. The prosecutors say, yeah, well, you don't believe them. He was telling Mitchell, pay the guy. F- to complete the circuit in the afternoon, Mitchell has to have talked to LaRue and said, pay the guy. We know that Mitchell and LaRue spoke. We know LaRue said, you know, what would you do? And Mitchell says, what's the money for? He says, legal fees. And Mitchell says, if it were me, I guess I'd pay them. So he's not paying him the 120000 It's not clear who called whom. LaRue thinks he called Mitchell. And most importantly to all of Watergate, it's not clear when that phone call occurred, whether it occurred in the morning or the afternoon. If it occurred in the morning, because John Dean tells him they need the money, he needs to call Mitchell. If it occurred in the morning, Nixon's out of the loop. If it occurred in the afternoon, you have a hypothetical case that Nixon may have been involved in the decision. Then we go to Thursday, Thursday at two o'clock. Everybody from the other meetings plus Mitchell, Nixon, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Dean, and Mitchell. This meeting on Thursday occurs in the old EOB, which has a terrible tape system. So you really can't hear half of what's going on. You're just straining like mad. But they have a conversation, and they talk about lots of stuff. And my view, there are other views, because the, the, the tapes are ambiguous, is at the Wednesday 5 o'clock meeting, they rejected John Dean's idea of granting some people immunity and just telling the Watergate story. We're not going to prosecute you, but we want to know what was going on because Dean wants immunity. He knows what he's done. On the Thursday meeting... Are you sure of that? That Dean wants immunity? I'm positive Dean wants immunity. 
uh, the, the, the whole the whole conduct. I'm positive that Dean was running the cover up and committing criminal acts. He says his supervisors knew it. I don't think so. Okay, that's the only part I'm I, I can't prove. We we know he met with Holloman. We know he met with Ehrlichman, but there's no recording device. So he says, oh, they were in on it. They knew. I think he said, I'm having trouble containing the problem. But there was this concept, always the concept there within the staff of plausible deniability. You didn't tell the guy above you uh, information that would commit them to a criminal act. What might President Nixon have done after the famous cancer on the presidency conversation with Dean to have ended it? Well, I'll tell you what I think he did do, and I think it's on the tapes, but it's ambiguous. In this meeting on Thursday, roughly what they say is, we'll get John Dean to put in writing what he told you on Wednesday, that people have been, people have been perjuring themselves, there's been a cover-up, and we're being blackmailed. We'll get him to put that in writing. You will say, I've gotten this report from John Dean. It changes everything. And I'm calling for a renewed investigation, and I'm not going to claim executive privilege on behalf of my people. They're all going back to the grand jury to to give evidence, because this stuff has come to my attention that is unacceptable. Okay? That's the decision. Now, that's quibbling about how much he puts in that report. They don't want to send their people to jail. Let's, you know, let's uh, let's be vague. You got to put it down, but don't. Don't, don't, don't be, don't be too specific. When does the president say, but that would be wrong? Uh, back in uh, 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 the cancer on the presidency speech on Wednesday one morning. One on one with Dean. Well, Haldeman's there for part of the time. But what is Haldeman there when he says, but that would be wrong? Well, I can't remember particularly when he says it. He says we could do that, but it would be wrong. Haldeman later testifies he's heard the tape. Nobody else has the tape, but he's heard the tape. And the president says that, and they convicted him of perjury because it comes later in the conversation. Excuse me, comes later in the conversation. So you you have to be very precise. It, it, the prosecutor says ten times in that hour and a half meeting, Nixon said, "I guess we better pay him to buy time to figure out what to do." But the but the theme that comes out from it, I mean, you got to look for it. These these tapes are tough is the way to beat Hunt's threat of exposing seamy stuff he did for the White House. And he means the plumber's break-in. He means Ellsberg. He means Ellsberg. Is to disclose that themselves. If they disclose that themselves, Hunt's got no threat to hold over them. The only question is how it comes out. How you start down that path because you'll lose control. If you start with another grand jury, or worse, if you go up to the Irvin Committee, it'll get politicized and there'll be a mess and people will be in real trouble. And some people have perjured themselves. And and and, and so it, it's a question of how do we lance the boil and where do we start? So that decision is made at the Thursday meeting with Mitchell that we're going to get a report from John Dean. Now, John Dean has said there was no report and the idea of me going to Camp David to write the report comes up afterwards, but it's right there on the tape. John agrees to write a report, and they say, why don't you go to Camp David? You'd be uh, away from distractions. You can get this thing done, and we go to Friday, March 23rd. John Dean goes physically to Camp David to write the report, 
On an earlier special edition, we let you listen to the entire hour and 39-minute tape between President Nixon and John Dean, and then later uh, Bob Halderman. And as it says, if you listen to that tape, you will see that at no point did Richard Nixon order anything on tape. And the prosecutors knew that. So they had to make a move, kind of using all the other uh, situations that you see that you can cast everybody underneath Nixon in a bad light. And that's because there was a cover-up going on that was originally to protect Jeb Magruder, but it stopped at that first rung, and none of the people above that were involved in it, especially President Nixon, who knew nothing about it. Cover-up that you've just referred to. Uh, he didn't hire Gordon Liddy. John Dean hired Gordon Liddy. I got it, but what did Magruder technically, Magruder, Magruder was his boss. When the material from the May 28th break-in, which was successful, wasn't good enough, Magruder sent the team back in to fix the microphones. He's the one that gave the order to Liddy to go in. Hunt didn't want to go in. He said, this is crazy. This is high risk. There's nothing there. Low reward. Let's go bug the suites in Miami. That is the cover-up, is that Magruder knew, Magruder and Dean knew, and they worked together to make sure that the investigation did not get above Cord and Liddy. Yes. That's the cover-up. Yes, that's the cover-up. The first cover-up. Protecting the first layer of protection is Magruder. It may or may not go up to Mitchell. We're vague on that part. But that's the first cover-up. The second cover-up begins thereafter. The one that ensnares President Nixon begins in this week of events that you're talking Uh, about. There are allegations in the prosecutor's files. It's absolutely true. Uh, I don't see it this way, but they say Nixon learned... If not before, Nixon learned for sure on Wednesday, March 21st from John Dean, and what he did after that cements him. He adopted the cover-up as its own. That's the accusation the prosecutors have, but they still don't have conclusive proof. Dean goes to Camp David to write the report. He realizes he can't write that report without incriminating himself because he's been running the cover-up. So he retains criminal defense counsel. It was a prominent Democrat. And they approach the career prosecutors looking for immunity. And the career prosecutors meet with them uh, uh, a number of times uh, uh, over the month of April. This is, remember, this is the end of March. Over the month of April. And the career prosecutors, and we have their notes from all these meetings. And they conclude they're not going to give him immunity. He's too intimately involved in the cover-up. Of the break-in. Yeah, cover-up of the break-in. So Dean and his lawyer approach the Irvin Committee that's looking for witnesses and drama. And they say, we will give you immunity. Okay, because at this point, the Congress has the right to give a certain sort of immunity They'll give Dean immunity in exchange for his testimony. They have a vested interest in making him their hero. So the American public sees John Dean presented as this whistleblowing hero instead of the guy who ran the cover-up and then when it blew up, switched sides and changed his testimony to blame his higher-ups. 
Now let's go to the, or do you want to? Uh, now I would, um, in fact, I think it would be a good time to move to the next segment, but I want to wrap up discreetly. You left me hanging on one second. I apologize. Before. We'll come back to the tapes and the president in a second. But when John Dean went to Camp David, yes. he makes a decision to turn. Absolutely. Does he leave Camp David? Yes. He tells Haldeman he can't do the report. Haldeman says, you may as well come home. He comes home, and on March 28th, he retains Charles Schaffer as his criminal defense counsel. That's when he turns. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's and, when he turns. And very quickly, Jeff Shepard, when that lawyer contacts the career prosecutors, yes. what's the reaction of the career prosecutors? A great surprise. Absolute great surprise. They knew and worked with John Dean. John Dean had been at the Department of Justice. They're very surprised. And it, it is very, very clear from all of the notes Schaffer comes in and says, John Dean can finger John Mitchell and Jeb Magruder about knowing about the break-in in advance. He's your path to those two people. Now, there's some very interesting things about uh, this turn of events, and, and one of them is Charlie Schaffer, who is the defense attorney that Dean hires. If you go, if you go back to an earlier show we talked about, but if you go to Shepard on uh, Watergate... Uh, that's Jeff Shepard's website. You'll see a chart. It's the Johnson Kennedy Justice Department chart in the criminal division on the labor and racketeering unit of the Get Hoffa Squad. You'll find the names Carmine Bellino, William Bittman, James Neal, who's very involved in the special prosecutor's office, and Charlie Schaffer. So he's connected to all of these people that will be a part of the Watergate Special Task Force. And it's interesting because at that moment that he gets involved, uh, the, 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 the theory of conspiracy begins to arise. And if you go back to the notes, we've talked about this in some of the earlier ones, but I'm going to read them to you, uh, that Silbert and Glanza and Campbell uh, meet that with, uh, had of their meetings. This is early April, I believe. You'll find the notes that say the situation is in a state of flux. Because of the Senate committee, Cox's offer of, uh, of April 15th, uh, Dean becomes uh, antagonistic to E and H, which is Ehrlichman and Haldeman. Uh, whereas before, he had given the impression about H was clean and restrained as to E's involvement. This was around the time of scapegoat statement by Dean. So you've got now a case where Dean has changed his story and the defendant's lawyers were never told that that had happened. Now, I thought it's only fair to hear from a person that we haven't heard much about or from in the last little while. Here is Richard Nixon, and he's going to talk about uh, what's on that tape and, uh, and the case of the money uh, and, and where he's at. In this interview from 1983, he is talking to Frank Gannon, who is one of his uh, chief aides and um, a man who has done a lot to preserve the history of President Nixon and worked with the Nixon Library to this day. Uh, he's the guy who seems to always be uh, hosting and narrating the events there. But this is an interview that he did in 1983. Some of them are on YouTube, and I can I highly recommend, before we move on to this, that if you are interested in President Nixon, that you go on YouTube and, and um and pull them up and, and take a listen to our fascinating interview. Uh, my notes and diaries made when we were at Camp David, when I was trying to bring the war 
to Vietnam to an end, to reorganize the government, prepare the, the uh, inaugural speech, uh, to select new members of the cabinet. My notes indicated that over and over again, I said, let's get a report on this thing. Let's clean it up because the election is over now. But nothing was done. And then we simply compounded those failures. Uh, we even considered uh, giving clemency to those that had done it so that they wouldn't talk about those higher up. We didn't do it, but we considered it. We talked about it. We even considered, as the infamous or notorious tape of March 21st, 1973 indicated, considering playing, uh, considered playing, paying blackmail. Uh, we didn't do it. We decided not to, as that tape also disclosed, but nevertheless, we talked about it. And the problem was that all of that uh, was, of course, exacerbated by the fact that what we talked about, even though we didn't do it, was on tape. And so what happened was uh, that the way we handled it, and we're responsible for it, the way we handled it, took what was basically uh, a misdemeanor, a break-in in which nobody was hurt, and made it the crime of the century. I must say with the assist uh, of the media and the assist of our very, uh, may I say, intelligent and ruthless uh, Democratic opponents. Hi, this is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. United States District Court for the District of Columbia, NRE report and recommendation of June 5th, 1972, grand jury concerning transmission of evidence of the House of Representatives, filed under seal March 1, 1974. Report and recommendation. The June 5th, 1972 grand jury has heard evidence that has led it to return the indictment being submitted herewith. It has also heard evidence that it regards as having a material bearing on matters that are within the primary jurisdictions of the House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary in its present investigation to determine whether sufficient grounds exist for the House of Representatives to exercise its constitutional power to impeach Richard M. Nixon, President of the United States. It is the belief of the grand jury that it should pres- 
presently defer to the House of Representatives and allow the House to determine what action may be warranted at this time by this evidence. It is the grand jury's strong and unanimous recommendation to the court, therefore, that the evidence referred to above be transmitted forthwith to the House Judiciary Committee for such use as it considers appropriate, with the further recommendation that the committee be advised of the grand jury's belief that this evidence should be received, considered, and utilized with due regard for avoiding any unnecessary interference with the ability of the court to conduct fair trials of persons under criminal indictment. The grand jury has compiled the evidence it recommends be transmitted to the House Judiciary Committee, and it has instructed the foreman to submit this evidence to the court under seal for the court's consideration, respectfully submitted. That was the letter to the judge from the grand jury foreman that moved the evidence and material that was in a briefcase over uh, first to the court and then to the House Judiciary Committee, all of it under seal. So the press doesn't know, the public doesn't know, and most importantly, the president doesn't know what's in it. Remember the debate over what to present the House Judiciary Committee? Yes. Um, I'm not sure I remember any specifics of, you know, this piece of evidence or that piece of evidence, but, um, of course, the preceding argument was the, the indict or not to indict, and once we decided that we would file an information, it was a question of, well, how much do you put in there and how do you package it? And creating a roadmap so that they would have a manageable amount of material, but enough that it was persuasive. And it was, I don't remember that it was all that hard to say this is a pretty persuasive presentation. Um, I, I remember the government briefcase, typical, you know, fake leather kind of medical doctor style briefcase that we put it in. It all fit in one briefcase. Um, that we brought to court and asked permission because of secrecy of grand jury to turn over and of course Judge Rickus said yes. Now that's something that not all judges may have done. It's you, you, It was the right thing. I think we had the legal precedent but um, it was a gutsy move. Is this something you had to convince Leon Jaworski of? Um, no, I don't remember him because remember this was the fight with him was we wanted to indict, and he didn't. And he said impeachment is the right procedure. And this really was what we thought we were doing to shorten the time it would take to get to impeachment. And I think we did have a pretty persuasive legal case of you can reveal grand jury testimony under these circumstances in this manner. And just as we persuaded Judge Sirica, I, I honestly don't remember Leon fighting us on this one at all. Um, how important was uh, President Nixon's involvement in the hush money to the indictability of the, of the president? I don't usually do this. I like to let oral histories play on through, but this is a, such an important point that I want to bring it to your attention. That is, Joe Weinbanks, one of the special prosecutors, is going to talk about how important the hush money payment is. Uh, and 
what Richard Dixon says on the March 21st tape. But I want you to pay attention to this. She can't give you a straight answer as to whether he actually ordered that payment. And they know it. I think it was pretty significant. I mean, it's, that's one of the more dramatic pieces in the tapes is hearing, well, well, we, we could do that. Yeah, I mean, well, it would be wrong, but we could do that. And hear that, and it's just, to me, incredible. And were you able to link that to an action? Because there's often the argument that, yes, he said that, but nothing came of it. Well, there was hush money. I mean, there's no question um, that they used a lot. I mean, Now, what I'm going to let you hear now is that I'll give Jill Weinbanks credit. She is a very skillful lawyer and doesn't at least put her arrogant attitude out like some of the other people on this deal. So what you will notice is she can't answer this question. She can't say Richard Nixon actually ordered that payment. So what she'll do, as a skillful lawyer lawyers do, is pivot into attacking former President Gerald Ford, who was a congressman on the banking committee, who at some point tried to stop uh, some of the, the, the look into uh, the money trail, according to her. But you watch this, and I'm going to replay that question and let it play in it all the way through for you. And were you able to link that to an action? Because there's often the argument that, yes, he said that, but nothing came of it. Well, there was hush money. I mean, there's no question um, that they used a lot. I mean, and again, the money trail is how we first really got into this. Um, And interestingly, President Ford, money trail reminded me of this, was on the banking committee. Uh, He was obviously not even vice president then because Spiro Agnew hadn't been indicted yet. Uh, What a group that was, huh? Um, And he tried killing the investigation of the money trail and somehow got away with it. I mean, he, he never paid the price when he actually ran for president after he became vice president and became president. He, he should have been held accountable for his actions in trying to stymie the investigation. And if the money trail investigation had been cut off, that would have been pretty significant because there was, and I don't remember the details now, you probably know it better than I do, but how we traced the money from creep to um, the Cubans. Uh, he tried to cut it, but he wasn't successful. No, but, but if he had, what I'm saying is if he had been, it would have been a very different investigation. So he should have, in my mind, when he was campaigning, someone should have said, well, you know, didn't you have a role in trying to kill the investigation? Isn't that wrong? Now, that was a pretty clever use of deflection by Mrs. Weinbanks. And you're going to see the same kind of thing uh, by Ben Venisti here, where he jumbles up a lot of things to make his case of, uh, you know, what the money was and uh, how it's an example of uh, obstruction of justice. One defense um, that the Richard Nixon made was that the hush, the money was not hush money. This was money just to, uh, just for the defense, the legal defense of the, the Cubans. Um, how, um, how were you going to sort out motive, um, if, if that had ever gone to trial? 
Well, you know, and that yeah, I know, no, it's a, no, no, it's a hard no, getting into the trial of Richard Nixon because we would be here all day. Uh, but the circumstances under which the uh, payments were made, um, and the promises that were made, and the flip side of if you don't do this, we will use uh, our leverage um, to give testimony. Uh, for which our sentences will be reduced or commuted or will get immunity from the prosecution for testifying against higher-ups um, becomes an obstruction of justice. So the offer of clemency, the offer of hush money, um, will fall into the same basket. And then, of course, there was the misuse of uh, government Agencies such as the CIA to interfere with the FBI, another indication of an obstruction. Now, Henry Ruth was the number two man. He would eventually end up being the special prosecutor, but he's the number two man almost the entire time. And he is friends with John Doerr. Now, John Doerr is the guy who's in charge of the House Judiciary Committee's uh, staff. Uh, that's, that's putting together the recommendation for the House Committee about impeachment. Uh, now, Dorr is, you know, not supposed to be, uh, or the special prosecutor is not supposed to be giving briefings to Dorr about what's going on in the grand jury, about evidence, all the stuff that's going on in the criminal investigation. And yet, as you hear, he'll say, uh, the interviewee, interviewer, Timothy Talley, at the very beginning of this segment will say, over this table, that's because they were having private meetings at Ruth's home over dinner and discussing evidence uh, to do with the investigation into Watergate. And this is important because if you've been listening to the shows, you know that the House Judiciary Committee actually did not go out and investigate. They became sort of a, a place where the Irvin Committee, the grand jury, and anybody who had been doing investigations in this their material ended up with the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, and as you as you have seen, there was a lot done to make sure they got their that grand jury information uh, by the prosecutors. And now you've got Ruth uh, telling John Doerr, uh, here's your case. He's, 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 he is, you know, we've got no way of knowing, but it certainly appears that he's leading Doerr through the case that he wants him to make towards impeachment, because Ruth and the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Force, they wrote the roadmap that the grand jury gave them. So if they're not investigating any more than what you've got, you're going with the roadmap that they handed you. And that's manipulating the scenario both for the grand jury and, of course, now for the House Judiciary Committee. Talking over this table with John Doerr, did he understand uh, the, 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 the case against the president. It's his, his job, of course, was to, was to investigate whether there were grounds for impeachment, which was a, a, a different question from a criminal case, or at least that is how the House Judiciary Committee looked at it ultimately. Um, did, did you find that you had to persuade him, or did he understand that as well in these conversations over your table? I think he believed that, but there was no way to <clears throat> understand it till you saw the evidence. So he may have been surprised at the, uh, 
at some of the evidence. But John was a good investigator, you know. He wouldn't state that something's definitely so until the evidence was in front of him. I mean, after Dean testified in the uh, Irvin Committee hearings, I think every belief one way or the other, whether the Watergate burglars had been paid off with cooperation of the president. Now we'll let you hear from three members, one on staff, two congresspeople, who were the recipients of this material. Sort of a report, some sort of roadmap, so to speak, although it wasn't, I mean, we, so, and then of course we got the tapes. We, we didn't do a lot of original investigation. Uh, we did some, but not, not very much. Uh, we interviewed the witnesses, obviously, before uh, uh, John Dean and, and John Mitchell and people like that. But we didn't go out to aggressively investigate the facts, which is something I wanted to do. I felt we had to do. This is what, this is my background, but as a prosecutor, as a private lawyer, Dorr was much more cautious about doing it. We received evidence from the Watergate grand jury. They turned evidence over to us, and among the some of the evidence they turned over to us included the tapes. Did the Senate Watergate uh, Committee turn over any evidence to you? Yes, and whatever depositions and transcripts they had um, developed and any other evidence. Uh, so we were what you call the dumping ground, <laughs> if you will. Not quite. I don't mean to make light of it, but we, uh, I think the important thing was that we got the benefit of the investigations that had already been done. We did very little original investigation on our own, but we put together the evidence that had been accumulated by the Senate Select Committee, by the grand jury, and then also we had to do our own uh, research and we had to make our own conclusions. And as you see, it had the desired effect. Did you do you remember seeing the um, the Watergate Special Prosecution Force? Leon Jaworski handed over <clears throat> what it, it was described as a roadmap. It's about a hundred. 20-page document with all of the information they had on the cover-up was handed to your committee. Do you recall looking? I do remember that, and I remember Jaworski. He was from Texas, wasn't he? Yes, he was, sir. Uh, and highly respected and not uh, thought of as a, you know, um, a terrible partisan, more of a Texas kind of Democrat. But I remember thinking at the time it was pretty devastating material that he gave us. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.